You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. Uh, happy Sunday, church. How we doing? Doing good? Okay, my name is Riz. If you don't know me, I'm the pastor here at Reality Honolulu. Uh, my wife here plays a keyboard, Zoe, and we have two kids, Liam and Eva, which is a trip. My daughter just turned 10 this week, so if you're a parent, you know that's crazy. I know, excited too, but it's crazy how time flies, but we are blessed as a family to be a part of this work of God and this church and grateful to be with you this morning. And so, like Zach said, it's a bit of a bittersweet Sunday in that we are finishing out this five-month series in the miracles of Jesus. Since the beginning of the year, we've been in this series where every Sunday we look at the Gospels and the three-and-a-half-year ministry of Jesus through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we highlight a different miracle every week and just look at it and how did Jesus interact and who did he interact with and Prayerfully, hopefully, you've been encouraged and stirred in your faith that if Jesus did that then for them, he can do it for us as well. And so it's been a beautifully awesome series, and so kind of bittersweet that we're ending it, but really excited for uh, our summer series in the book of Proverbs. But if you could turn with me, if you have a Bible, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 24 today. So we're reading quite a bit of scripture. I'm going to break it into two parts, but the first part is like 34 verses I'm going to read right now, so you can do it. But I would love for you to follow along if possible. Uh, We do have Bibles on the tables right by the doors as you came in, or no worries, you can open your Bible app, but just don't get distracted. That's a dangerous game to wipe out your phone right now. But I have it on the screen as well. But before I read this section of scripture... I want to remind us a bit that we, what we've tried to do the last several months is we haven't gone over every miracle of Jesus. We haven't had the time for that. But we've looked kind of at the gamut of what he's done. We started with when he turned water into wine at that wedding in Cana, uh, when he calmed the storm, when he healed the leper, when he cast out demons, when he fed the 5,000, all these different miracles that he's done. And today... How I want to end is I want us to read about the greatest miracle that he performed was his own resurrection from the dead and the implications that it has had then and the whole world and specifically how all these miracles and specifically this one impacted the disciples that were closest to him over those three and a half years. And so uh, if you can read with me his final and most powerful world-altering miracle, uh, Luke 24, 1 through 34 says this, and then we'll pray. But very early on Sunday morning, the woman went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. They found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance, so they went in, but they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. As they stood there puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them clothed in dazzling robes. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. Then the men asked, 
why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Remember what he told you back in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be portrayed into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and that he would rise again on the third day. Then they remembered that he had said this. So they rushed back from the tomb to tell his 11 disciples and everyone else what had happened. It was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, Mary the mother of Jesus, and several other women who told the apostles what had happened. But the story sounded like nonsense to the men, so they didn't believe it. However, Peter jumped up and ran to the tomb to look. Stooping, he peered in and he saw the empty linen wrappings. Then he went home again, wondering what had happened. Verse 13. That same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. As they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them, but God kept them from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? They stopped short, sadness written across their faces. Then one of them, Cleopas, replied, You must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened there the last few days. What things, Jesus asked. The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles. And he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death And they crucified him. We had hoped that he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. This all happened three days ago. Then some women from our group of his followers were at his tomb early this morning, and they came back with an amazing report. They said his body was missing, and they had seen angels who had told them Jesus is alive. Some of our men ran out to sea, and sure enough, his body was gone just as the women had said. Then Jesus said to them, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe that all the prophets wrote in the scriptures? Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering into his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. By this time, they were nearing Emmaus, and at the end of their journey, Jesus acted as if he were going on, but they begged him, stay the night with us since it's getting late. So he went home with them. As they sat down to eat, he took the bread and blessed it, and he broke it and gave it to them. Suddenly, their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and at that moment, he disappeared. They said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? And within the hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 disciples and the others that were gathered with them who said, The Lord has really risen. He appeared to Peter. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this recollection of what you did and how you 
appeared to your disciples some 2,000 years ago. And Lord, if we know anything about your word and about Christianity, that what happened then is just as potent and powerful and applicable to us today. Especially for those of us in this room right now that, that call ourselves Christians and followers of Jesus. God, if anything, we don't want our eyes to be blinded or we don't want to miss out on what you have, but we want our eyes to be open this morning to the potency of what you did then today. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so not only is this um, really fun, powerful moment that Jesus has with his disciples, but what, what I want to do this morning is actually just think about the powerful effect that Jesus had on the ones who were closest to him. And I want to specifically have us think about the effect that happened to these people that were in close proximity to Jesus. So there, over the, the course leading up to this story in Luke 24, it had been three and a half years since Jesus publicly kind of started doing ministry. For 30 years, he was kind of unknown and obscure carpenter in Nazareth. And then he came on the scene, and he started teaching and preaching and doing all these miracles. And so then everyone said, wait a second. I don't think he's just a carpenter. I think he may be the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Messiah of Israel, right? Like, word starts getting around. I mean, many don't believe. Ultimately, he was crucified because many thought he was being blasphemous and claiming to be God as like a random carpenter from Nazareth. But nonetheless, what we see in the beginning of the Gospels is that Jesus handpicks these 12 guys. And in no means were these like the cream of the crop guys. That's the whole point. They were normal they were maybe even obscure. Some were a little bit like controversial figures. Some were not liked. I mean, to this day, I still trip out on like who Jesus picked. Right? If you were, you know, God and you wanted to change the whole course of human history and you wanted to gather around 12 people to pour into, I wouldn't have picked any of these. But again... God works inwardly, and his plans are not our ways. And so what he did was he grabbed mostly like fishermen and tax collectors and this ragtag group of salty dogs, and they walked with him, they ate with him, and they lived with him for three years. But what they did was they shadowed him. They apprenticed him. They watched what he did, and they tried to do it themselves. For these 12 men, it was the greatest type of schooling and training they could have ever gotten. I don't think they would have learned well in the classroom setting <laughs> these guys at all. And so what they did was they were close, and they were near to Jesus. And when Jesus got in the boat, they got in the boat. And when he went here, they went there. When he stopped, they stopped. 
And that is how they started changing. That is how they grew, and that is how they became like Jesus. It was that they were in the right environment. Again, hear this, because it's going to speak to all of us. It wasn't anything that they did. It was not at all what they did. They were not the right guys for the job. They were not super spiritual. They had not obtained something. They were not gifted or skilled at all. They just positioned themselves near Jesus. That'll preach all day long. Just hang on to that. It was that they were just proximate to Jesus. They were just near and they just did what he did and watched what he did and copied him. They put themselves in the right environment for growth to happen. Which reminds me of something that happened recently in my own life, and you're going to think it's funny, but just stick with me. Over COVID, I started gardening. I became a green thumb a little bit, right? Everyone had a COVID hobby, whether it's baking sourdough bread or woodworking or painting or whatever you did. I just started watching YouTube videos and started growing things in my yard. And so one of those things is bananas, okay? I have a picture this week. This is one of a huge bunch of bananas that just came from our tree at our house this week. And I'm not showing this to be like, look at the banana farmer I am. Okay, that's not what I'm doing. Which those bananas in the back, that's that. So those bananas, they're ice cream bananas. Like apple banana, but ice cream banana. So you have to, that's for you. If you don't take it, trash can. You know what I mean? So take it. These bananas... The reason why I bring this up is we live in Kaneohe. Kaneohe, I'm going to be a little bit like favoritism here. I think it's the closest to the Garden of Eden. When it comes to growing things, okay, the combination of how much it rains and the sun and the humidity, like it's hard to kill things there. Meaning I planted this tree and I did not water, I did not fertilize, I didn't do anything. I didn't touch it. And look at the fruit. That is God plus Kaneohe. No, seriously. My, my whole point is I did not grow these. I did not grow these. It's just that they were planted in the right environment. You see where I'm going? They were just planted in the right place, and God did all the work. Because they were positioned correctly. My point is, is that this was not my doing. They were in the right environment. So think back to the disciples for a second. They were in just the right place for growth to happen. Which is near Jesus. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves this morning. You can take down the banana picture. It's okay. I am proud of them though. My question is this, are we as a people, individually, myself included, this is a question for me too, are we positioned in a way where God can grow us? Are we even putting ourselves near Jesus? Because, right, if we want to grow, like, it's not just going to happen. You have to do things. So what I mean by that, and maybe maybe a more practical question is, like, 
The reason why we go to church, it's not, it should not be to just go, well, it's my duty and I should, and I check the box, and as long as I go like twice a month, I think God will still love me. Like, no, wrong. This is just a wrong way of thinking. That's not even how it works. But when we put ourselves in church, you hear the word of God, you worship. Or when you open up your Bibles at home at any time, at any moment, you're putting yourself in a space, you're positioning yourself for God to speak to you. Or when you, you don't always have to, but to have Christian community, do an Ohana group, have people in your life that can pray for you. You're putting yourself in a place for God to speak to you. That's why like Christians, pastors, churches are probably always harping, read your Bible, pray, come to this, because we're trying to just get you to Jesus. Because ultimately, it's God using me and you and other people and his word and his Holy Spirit. That's how we grow. Just trying to get you into the right soil, Kaniohe soil. You could, <laughs> everyone's fighting me on like, no, it's not the best. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. It's the beauty about Hawaii. You're always proud of where you're from. It's beautiful. But my question is, are we making ourselves proximate to Jesus? Are we putting ourselves near to Jesus? And again, church and the word of God and prayer and Christian community are all means to just get us to Jesus. It shouldn't just be like a bunch of to-do lists. But again, we should just be wanting to become more like him. And again, it wasn't just that they were only proximate, these disciples. It wasn't just that they were just around him. But Jesus was their teacher. Literally, the word rabbi is teacher. It means teacher. They had a model example to follow. They had an actual physical person to watch and to, to, to see how he spoke, to see how he responded to criticism. They watched how he cared and loved for the outcasts of society. They watched how he had the faith to believe that his father in heaven could do everything. They, they were just studying him for three and a half years as this model example of how to walk with God. And again, as Christians, again, I say this a lot, but if you call yourself a Christian, you're actually calling yourself something. Christian means little Christ. Christians got the name because by essence, by nature, is that we are to look like Jesus. Like our life is supposed to, when people see our life, they're, they're supposed to go, huh, those are the same characteristics of the person of Jesus, right? We're supposed to point others to Jesus. We're ambassadors. We're representatives of Christ. And for us, the very best example we have is Jesus. And so that's why it's so important that we know who Jesus is. And we try to walk as he walked and talked as he talked and do as he did. That's like the best answer I could give a new Christian. Hey, what's Christianity all about? What do I do next? Just know and copy the life of Jesus. 
Just know the person of Jesus well and do as he did and speak as he spoke. Treat others as he treated others. Like, dude, the world would be absolutely radically changed if we just tried to do that. It's funny, I remember um, the first time that like an apprentice role happened in my own life and it was in like a job situation. So for all my mainland folks in here, specifically my California friends, I grew up there and my high school and college job was a wonderful place, I think the best place, called In-N-Out Burger, okay? So if you have anything against In-N-Out, it's fine. I've heard it all. I just will never be swayed. <laughs> proud, proud In-N-Out employee of like four or five years. So got there in high school, just started driving. All my friends from high school, we started working at In-N-Out Burger. This was my high school and college job. And uh, it's a whole world. In-N-Out is a whole world. There's different positions, like it's an assembly line, it's fast-paced, you have incentives for doing well, like there is a timer at the drive-thru, however many cars you put through in an hour, you're getting things, like <laughs> it's a whole world. And not only did you just like want to do more because you're like, oh, this, but we're in high school, we're high school boys and we're competitive. And so all of us started in the same time and if you did well you moved up and you got paid more and it's like dude this is this is the game now and so we tried really hard to be really good at stuff because we just wanted to be better than the other person and in the store at any in and out burger okay I'll just tell you the best person just becomes the store trainer they become an official store trainer because they're just quick and good and they're the best at everything. And then they start training people around you, right? And you shadow this person and you do as they do. You ask questions and you work alongside them and you practice and you go for it. So for me, I wasn't good at a lot of things in and out, but there was one thing I really excelled in, the fries, okay? I'm not joking. If you go in and out drive through, you know the guys that, like, you know, bless you, right? The potatoes and the dicer and the fryers. There's actually a whole science because you can't make too little and too much, and you got to keep the drive going, and you have to, it's a whole thing. I know it's, this doesn't seem hard, but it's a thing. Side note, I actually got my nickname Riz from that very job doing the fries. That's another story, though. But here's my point. I'll take you out of the in and out world back to the Bible for a second. Here's my point. If you want to do something bad enough, you will surround yourself with people that are the best at that thing. You'll learn as they do, you'll learn how it works, and you will become like them. You do not have to have special skills. You just have to have like the grit to want to do it. That is true, I'm serious. Especially you guys that are young. The world's gonna tell you something different. Just like apprentice under someone that's really good at stuff and do as they did. Make it your own. But you will thrive with like a good work ethic and good people skills. Thrive. Okay, that's my, I'll get off this soap stool for a second. Back to the disciples. What did they do? They just stuck around Jesus and they just tried the best that they could in their ability to be like him. They wanted it. And as Christians, 
Like this has to be one of our top aims, is to study and know the life of Jesus so well that we emulate and practice it. Are we going to ever perfect it? Absolutely not. Are we going to mess up and do the wrong thing? Absolutely not. That's why God has tons of grace and tons of forgiveness. But one of the top aims of the Christian should be looking to Jesus and apprenticing Jesus. That he's, the, he's perfect in all his ways. He perfectly honors God. He perfectly loves God. He perfectly loves people. What better example than we have than the person of Jesus? But again, it doesn't stop there. It has to be in conjunction with praying that the Holy Spirit also changes us. Like, it's one thing to know Jesus' life really well, but in, in and of ourselves, there's no way in and of our own strength that we can be like Jesus. We need supernatural power. But again, if you study the life of Jesus, you attempt to model it, and then you pray for the Holy Spirit to do the work, I guarantee, like money back guarantee, okay, that he will increase in your life. You will decrease. You'll become less sinful and less selfish. And your, your destructive ways will decrease and God's character will increase in your life. It, it really will happen. But again, the question I have for us, and again, myself included, because I'm still hugely in process as well as a disciple, the question is, how bad do we want to be like Jesus, though? How bad do we want it? Because, again, think about your own life. If you want something really bad, you will change your whole life to go after it. I guarantee you that's true. If you want something bad enough, you'll make the sacrifices, you'll stop doing the things, you'll stop doing that, because you want to get that thing. And so each of us as disciples, we have a choice. So did the 12. They had to give up a lot, actually. Especially these fishermen. They were generational fishermen. Grandpa's fished. Dad's fished. This is their vocation. This is all they knew how to make money. And what happened more often than not? Jesus said, drop your nets and come after me. So for them, they chose following Jesus, and actually for them, it was sacrificing maybe their livelihood or sacrificing their future plans. Following Jesus does require sacrifice, and sometimes we think it's of good things, but it's also to get the greatest thing, to get the best thing, which is a life proximate and near to him doing as he did. Okay, kind of for the sake of the next 10 minutes, okay, I'm, I'm wrapping up. I'm going to read the second half of Luke 24, say a few things, then we'll end into worship. But if you can turn your Bibles back, we're going to finish that story that we just read with Jesus on the road to Emmaus with the disciples. Pick up in verse 35, okay, you with me? Luke 24, 35. Then the two from Emmaus told their story of how Jesus had appeared to them as they were walking along the road and how they had recognized him as he was breaking the bread. And just as they were telling about it, Jesus himself was suddenly standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. But the whole group was startled and frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost. Why are you frightened, he said. 
Why are your hearts filled with doubt? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. You can see that it is really me. Touch me and make sure that I'm not a ghost because ghosts don't have bodies as you see that I do. As he spoke, he showed them his hands and his feet. Still, they stood there in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. When he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he ate it as they watched. Then he said, when I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to, minds to understand the scriptures, and he said, yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. It was also written that his message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations, beginning in Jerusalem. There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. You are witnesses of these things. But listen to 49. Now and now I will send the Holy Spirit, just as my Father promised. But stay here in the city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from heaven. It's so important that we don't miss out on 49. And here's why I bring up the resurrection at the ending miracle of the day. Because again, all other miracles were leading up to this grand finale. But we see that this sets it apart because God was fulfilling what he promised of conquering sin and the grave. And not only does that give us hope that we share in this eternal life, that we share for the future, but Jesus didn't leave it at that. He wound up that. And he said, I am leaving. I'm going to be with the Father. One day, you'll be with me. But until then, this is what Jesus said, don't go anywhere until you get the Holy Spirit. See, what Jesus does as he leaves is he gives the church, he gives us himself in the person of the Holy Spirit, right? It's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's the third person of the Trinity. What the Bible tells us is that the Holy Spirit resides in us. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Why? So that we have the power to live for him. So again, it's important. It isn't good enough just to look at the life of Jesus and try hard, but in conjunction, God, through the power of your Holy Spirit, let me live like you. Paul, to the church in Romans, he says this. Romans 8, 11, he said to Christians, the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ, from, Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same spirit living within you. See, up to this moment, for the disciples, you know, watching the life of Jesus had really been an incredible show, right? It been an incredible testimony of the power of God. But now it became personal. Because Jesus looked at each of these and said, not only did I 
do what I told you I would do. I conquered death. I'm risen from the dead. I share that resurrection life with you. But he says, now I, not only are you proximate, but now I live with you, in you, in the person of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus would ascend to heaven, when we read, when we turn the page after the Gospels, we get to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. We see the Holy Spirit fall upon the church for the very first time, and believers for the first time are filled with God himself. And so church, as we kind of end the time of sermon, as we enter into a time of worship, my question would be is, have we made this our own? Are we walking in this resurrection power of God in our own lives? And I think we all can know this a little bit, right? When we encounter something in our life, like this week, someone is going to probably be mean to us or disrespectful or dishonoring. And what is our natural fleshly response? Pounce back. Give it back harder. Make them feel small. Whatever it is. In those, that's the moment where we need to go, God, by the power of your spirit, help me to respond the way you would. That's, those are the kind of moments I'm talking about that we as a people would walk in the resurrection power of Jesus. So I'm going to pray for our time of worship, but I just want to encourage us to not miss out on being proximate to Jesus and being filled with his spirit to walk in his power uh, as we go out today. Amen? Amen. God, thank you so much that you did just as you said you would. That you conquered the power of sin and the penalty of sin, that you paid the price for our own disobedience and that you've given not only abundant life here, but you've promised us eternal life. And if that wasn't enough, now you've given us your Holy Spirit. You'll never leave us or forsake us, that wherever we go, you go with us, Father, in the person of the Holy Spirit. And God, as we enter into this time of worship, as we reflect upon who you are and what you've done for us, not only do we pray that you would get glory right now, that you would be exalted in this place, but also, God, I do pray that you would minister to each of us in this room, that perhaps we would surrender our own strength to you and say, God, I need you. Maybe it's encouraging us. Maybe it's ministering to us this morning. But, but God, have your way in these next few songs of worship as we, as we end our time together. Pray that we would make the most of it and that we would worship you and you would minister to us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.